0: Hey, it's Saturday, October 31st, it's about 9.30 in the morning, I'm in the vehicle, going to run a few errands, and uh, I wanted to talk in this episode uh, among a few topics, among, um, there's a few topics I'd like to talk about in this episode. Uh, First, I'd like to kind of review some of the problems that we had in the last tire hammer build and they weren't big. I mean, we didn't really have any major issues. We had fewer issues this time around than we did the last, um, in the, in the tire hammer build we, we did in February, uh, talked about some of the issues we had with the die plates getting reversed and we had to do a lot of grinding to make the dies match up right. Uh, we got through it and it wasn't that big a deal, but you know, it did, we did lose some time. Uh, this time, um, really the only problem that I know of that, that cropped up, you know, kind of fabrication wise, was that the machined rams that fit into the hammer, you know, these are big 70 pound blocks of steel. And at the top they have holes that are milled or uh, drilled all the way through the, all the way through this big rectangular block so that a couple of pins can sit And those are the pins that connect to these little swing arms that then connect to the rest of the linkage that allows the ram to be raised and lowered. And so these are important hinge pins and the hinge pins, either the hinge pins or the rams themselves were just ever so slightly too tight. Uh, Either the pins were a little bit large or the rams themselves were just a little bit too small. And I mean, I'm talking thousands, you know, just a very small amount. Um, They were just so tight that they couldn't, that you couldn't hand tap the pins into place. And uh, so what they did was they, uh, John Paraloo grabbed his, tractor and ran back to his other shop and, uh, loaded a fly press. I think it was a number six fly press onto a trailer and draw, uh, and brought that fly press back around to the workshop. And, uh, he and Curtis grabbed each one of the rams and the pins, put it under the fly press and with a series of, uh, blocks, you know, to get everything level they were able to drive the pins down into the ram and capture the swing arms uh, without you know without too much trouble it just it took a little time to do but while they were working on getting those pins set everybody else was continuing to work on all the various little projects and things that have to be done to get these tire hammers uh built so not a huge issue and John had a really nice solution with the fly press on hand to uh, to knock that out. You probably could have done the same thing with a with an arbor press, um, but it would have needed to have been an arbor press with enough throat clearance to allow you know that ram and the pin and everything to fit underneath it. And the fly press just worked out perfect for that. Plus, I'm a big fan of pl- fly presses, and I thought it was kind of cool to see one get used uh, in that manner. Um, uh, the second problem was something we found right at the very end of the build when we were tuning the hammers. So, um, this was something that I got to do this time that I didn't, uh, really know how to do during the last build, but Alan, uh, asked me if I would help to test the tire hammers after, after they were all completed. And so he kind of ran me through the procedure that he goes through to check all the tire hammers. And, uh, and so I started kind of on one end of the room and he started on another end of the room. Uh, and we would go through each one of these tire hammers, checking for function and, you know, looking for anything that was out of place or loose or, you know, just doing a a really good once over to make sure they were good to go. And, um, we had one of the tire hammers, it just would not engage the tire, so you'd push the foot treadle down, which pushes the uh, motor and the pulley into the tire to start the tire to spin, which then spins the whole counterweight up and down. Um, but anyway, um, we had one tire, it was number 13 out of 32, and no matter how much pressure we put on that treadle, the motor was pushing into the tire plenty hard. It just wasn't engaging. It was, it was, it, it seemed like it was slipping and some amount of slip is desirable or it's actually, uh, part of the function of the hammer. So there's a certain amount of slip that happens between the tire and the, and the pulley on the motor, um, that allows you to do soft hits, just like the clutch in a little giant, uh, is designed to slip to engage or disengage the the main drive wheel. Same principle on a tire hammer. The slip between the pulley and the tire um, is just part of the mechanism, but too much slip or not enough slip and you've got a problem. And what we were seeing was uh, an exaggerated amount of slip. So um, we called in Curtis and John Peralu and everybody kind of got around the hammer and they were looking at it. And I think it was John maybe put his hand on the tire and there was a coating on the tire, kind of like a slick, greasy coating, um, some kind of oil maybe was on the tire and that pulley just would not engage the rubber. You know, it was just too slick. And so they tried some solvent to clean the tire off, and that helped a little bit, but not enough. So uh, then somebody ran and got some sandpaper. And uh, they ran the tire and, uh, and sanded the uh, surface of the tire a little bit while it was running. And uh, between that and cleaning up the tire, uh, that did the trick. And so uh, we, we found maybe one other hammer that had kind of a similar issue. I'm sorry, I'm distracted. There's like a bajillion police cars out here. Oh, it's a political, <laughs> I'm driving down the road and there's a political parade, um, kind of going down the street with political signs for a local Senate candidate. Anyway, um, I think we had one or two other hammers that kind of had that slick feel, and I think one or two guys kind of found that they needed to clean their tire a little bit when they got home. So again, you know, not a big issue, not, not a big problem. But what was weird is that, uh, in the other builds, this had not been enc- encountered before. So for whatever reason, these tires that were acquired, uh, a few of them just had some kind of coating, um, on them that needed to be cleaned. So if you're a tire hammer owner or a new tire hammer owner, make sure your tire, is nice and clean. And once you clean it, uh, it's, I don't think that's something you have to do, you know, regularly as long as you're not getting stuff on the tire. But so those were the two, those are really the only two issues that I saw that happened, uh, during the build. Um, I did see some of the base plates, which are 24 by 24 base plates that the entire hammer sits on. I did see a couple of those base plates kind of uh, get slightly warped uh, during welding. You know, it's a lot of heat that's being put in to weld that 515 pound cylinder to a half inch piece of plate, uh, uh, as well as the tube that makes up the back spine of the hammer. Um, so it's, I think it's kind of difficult to put that much heat into a big sheet of steel like that and not uh, end up with some warping a little bit. Uh, the hammer that I brought home, number 22, um, number two, um, has a little bit of that warping so that when it's sitting flat on the concrete, you know, it, it tends to kind of wobble a little bit back and forth, but there's four holes drilled in that plate and the hammers are designed to be bolted down. Um, even if the plate was perfectly flat on the floor. Um, you can't run these hammers without bolting them down and not have them walk all over your shop. Um, so uh, I'm not concerned about that uh, in the least. If I was really concerned about it, I could take a torch and uh, lay the hammer down and try to work on that. But I'm not worried about it. I'm just going to bolt it to the floor and uh, on top of a piece of plywood. And and that'll take care of that issue. But uh, anyway, so those... Those are the quote-unquote problems that we had during the tire hammer build and uh, everything was resolved pretty quickly. Um, I think this tire hammer build may have been the smoothest build uh, that I've heard of as far as problems. Um, I'm trying to think of anything else that I might mention in that regard. Oh, the, the heat treat of the dies. So we, we tried a little different method to uh, get a better result with the dies uh, hardness. We heard that there were a few die sets from the last build that seemed to be not quite as hard as they should be. And when I say that uh, if you're forging hot steel uh, between these dies it's not you're not going to see a problem. I mean you might see a long-term wear issue on these dies that uh, were not quite as hard as others. But uh, in any case, we, we did a few things this time to try to mitigate that and try to increase hardness. And one of those things was Alan Cress brought a, uh, a long three-eighths inch steel rod with two rectangular paddles welded to the end. And we put that in a drill and we use that to agitate the oil and spin it around in the oil so that when we went to quench, we would uh, try to get uh, faster cooling. And um, I think that worked pretty well. Uh, we had, some guy had a a hardness tester of some sort that uh, someone was, I think it was Mike Lynn was using to try and test the hardness of these dies. And the way the tester worked was there was a, a little punch set and you would punch a divot into the steel, and then there was a magnifying glass and a chart, and you could look at the divot that you put in, and then compare that divot uh, with a chart that you could lay over the divot, and it would tell you, uh, based on the size of your divot, it would tell you the approximate hardness. Um, in uh, Rockwell, I think it was a Rockwell, it was some other Rockwell scale that needed to be converted um in order to get an appropriate hardness reading. So it was kind of a ballpark figure we were working with anyway, but I think they tested one of the dies that we did and the edges were around forties to fifties, but the middle was between thirties and forties. So that's a little soft for a power hammer die. But again, if you're working if you're working hot steel on those dies, I don't think it's going to be a problem, but, um, um, that's a, that's something that I think Alan and Clay are going to work on over the next few months is trying to figure out what is a, a really reliable way to, um, heat treat those 4140 blocks in a mass, uh, well, in a large class setting like that. You know, when you're heat treating these dies at home or, when these tire hammer builders are making these die sets one at a time, um, it's pretty easy to do, to get repeatable uh, results one at a time. But when you're trying to quench 64 hammer dies, um, you either need to have a massive amount of quench oil available to keep it from getting hot, or you need some kind of recirculating tank or something like that. So anyway, they're, they're, There's a lot of discussion going on about uh, what the best way to do uh, mass 4140 power hammer die heat treating, um, you know, in a classroom setting. What the best way to do that is. So, uh, as I hear about that, I'll try to keep everybody informed. But uh, anyway, I'm just about to my destination, so I'm going to stop yakking. And, uh, in the next segment, I'm going to talk about a couple of the tools that have come into the shop, namely the new tire hammer. And, um, I got another fly press recently. So I'm going to talk about those for just a little bit. So I'll see you then. Bye. Hey there. Um, let's see. I don't even know what day it is. (laughs) That's what happens when you, when you work from home. It's Saturday. November the 21st and it's about five thirty in the afternoon. Um, thought I would do an update. It's been a, been a week or two, probably two weeks since I updated this episode of the podcast. Um, let's see. I think I was talking about lessons we learned from the last tire hammer build. Uh, the last time I talked to you all, um, since then I have gotten both of the tire hammers, uh, the one that we built in February and the one that we just built recently in October, both of those tire hammers are bolted down to the shop floor and they are both in working order. Um, and I've really been using them a lot. I've been using the, uh, the tire hammer from last year in particular quite a bit and that hammer is dialed in. I mean works great. Um, I went to a uh, Mississippi Forge Council meeting today. We have meetings on the third Saturday of the month usually and uh, anyway uh, we have a 50 pound little giant that's there in the uh, Forge Council building. Uh, Obviously uh, 50 pound little giants are great hammers. Um, This one it looks like it's had a brake system added to it, uh, kind of as an afterthought. Uh, but otherwise, it's it's got some pretty wide combination dies in it, and um, it's, it's a nice hammer, and I've used it a good bit, um, but I haven't really compared it to the tire hammer much until today. And uh, so that's kind of one of the things I wanted to talk about a little bit um, was I've been using the 70-pound Clay Spencer tire hammer just about every day for the last month. And I've I've been making a bunch of those uh, railroad spike stake turners uh, for the web store. And uh, I use the tire hammer quite a bit to draw those out because the die space on the tire hammer Uh, just lends itself to that kind of work a lot better than the Anyang ST88. And uh, So anyway I've got a lot of time on that hammer recently. I'm really familiar with how it's working. Um, I'm getting I'm getting pretty good at controlling it Um, and I would say at this point I can make really really light hits uh, all the way up to really hard, um, hits and, uh, the control of it is exceptional. I'm just blown away with how easy it is to control the tire hammer and, and how well it works. It's just a phenomenal tool. And, um, uh, you know, if you have listened to the podcast, you know that I'm already a big, I'm a big fan of the Clay Spencer tire hammer. And, uh, the more I use them, the bigger or the more I like them. You know, and so anyway, today was the first time that I put my foot on the treadle of the fifty-pound little giant um, since using the Clay Spencer tire hammer so much, and so it was a really good opportunity for me to really judge the control and uh, the power um, between these two hammers: a fifty-pound little giant and a seventy-pound Clay Spencer. Uh, tire hammer and the die space on the fifty-pound little giant is much larger than the die space on the Clay Spencer tire hammer. It's probably twice as big, and that's that's a big deal. You know, it's really a nice, it's really a nice thing to have uh, wide dies to be able to use tooling and things like that. However that 50 pound little giant at the forge council building is nowhere close to having the kind of control that I have with the clay spencer tire hammer um you know it's sometimes those little giant power hammers are called trip hammers and um that's that's a good way to explain how the 50 pound little giant felt when running it today um it's like you push down on the treadle, and the clutch engage and spins the the flywheel uh, around, and it causes the you know the armature to raise and lower the hammer, the ram, and it almost trips over. You know, it, it kind of raises up and then it slams back down, and I'm sure that fifty pound little giant really needs a good tune up. Um, But I was kind of shocked at how sloppy feeling that little giant was compared to the tire hammer. Um, It was just kind of like, you know, you you push down on the pedal and you you hope that you have your work in the right uh, area uh, when that ram is going to come down because it's kind of a guessing game uh, a little bit. You know, it was like, It was either all or nothing, it seemed like. There wasn't a whole lot of finessing uh, on that little Giant. And again, I think that probably goes back to the fact that it needs to be tuned up a good bit. But it just reinforced the idea that I have that uh, a well-built Clay Spencer tire hammer is just an outstanding value. I was thinking about it today. That 50 pound little giant, you know, if, if the Forge Council decided to try and sell that hammer right now for whatever reason, you know, reasonably they could probably ask five, six, maybe seven thousand dollars for that hammer because it's a 50 pound, it's in good shape, although it does need a tune-up. Um, that's, that's what those hammers will bring, if not more, because they're antique tools, you know, they, they have a, uh, they have an historical value to them that a tire hammer doesn't necessarily have. And I'm, I'm not saying that's a, a good thing or a bad thing. It's just the way it is. And so if you're, if you're wanting to have a hammer to use in your shop and you're on a budget you know, once again, the tire hammer is the winner in my book because, you know, most guys that are looking to get a power hammer, they're they're looking for a power hammer to do work. They're not looking for a power hammer to be an antique. And so anyway, that was just something that I thought about today a lot when I was at the Forge Council meeting was just kind of the differences and uh, the fact that for me still, the Clay Spencer tire hammer Uh, still comes out on top. So anyway, I I got those hammers bolted down in the shop and I've been using them a lot. I also got another fly press recently um, in the shop. I got a Denby number six fly press. It's a really cool tool. Um, It's uh, it's an original, I mean, it it has an original cast iron stand. So it's a Denby cast iron stand with the denby fly press and the whole package together is just it's one of those tools that i saw online uh, advertised and it was just drawn to it because of the beauty of it and for me you know i'm just talking about guys that don't want antique tools in their shop um they just want a tool to do the work. Well, that's not why I bought this fly press. I bought this fly press just because I wanted this particular fly press. Um, it's painted gold. It's got red weighted balls on the top. It's in immaculate condition. It works great. Um, and then, to, you know, the cherry on the top is that this fly press came out of a, uh, a workshop in the UK that was, uh, manufacturing Spitfire planes during World War II. So somehow in some capacity, this fly press was used, was used, um, during the war effort, uh, in World War II, which I think is just another really, really cool, uh, thing about it. And it's one of those things where I had the money in the business account, um, to buy the tool and, um, totally didn't need it. But really wanted it. (laughs) So, um, I had to move some other tools around in the shop and now I've got it set up in a line with the tire hammers. So I have a tire hammer, a treadle hammer, a tire hammer, and then the fly press all in a row, uh, on one wall in the shop. And, uh, right now I've got some pretty big fuller dies in that fly press and I'm using it to, uh, to do a particular operation when I make my bottle openers. Um, so anyway, that's kind of a shop update, uh, that took a little bit of effort to move everything around in the shop. It kind of caused me, uh, probably about a week's worth of downtime in the shop to get all those tools, uh, moved around, holes drilled in the foundation, uh, anchors put down, you know, it takes a while to do all that stuff, but, um, it was well worth it to get all those tools into place and to add yet another piece of power forging equipment to the shop. Um, I know I've talked about this in the past, but having multiple power forging tools, uh, at your disposal where you can set up dies and different tools really speeds things up. And, uh, it's already changed kind of how I do things, uh, with certain processes, uh, for, you know, with the bottle openers, for example, I was, I was having to change dies out, um, on my existing fly press. Uh, and now I can leave a certain set of dies over in that fly press. I can put another set in this one. Um, I can have a third set in the hydraulic press and just move around between tools really quickly and, uh, knock things out, um, literally in in a, in a matter of minutes. And so, um, there's my shop update, uh, portion of the podcast. I know that's probably a lengthy explanation just to say, hey, I got the tire hammers bolted down and added a fly press. But I um, wanted to keep you up to date. Um, still making those railroad spike flippers as fast as I can make them. Those orders are still coming in. And um, since it's the Christmas season, I think that's really uh, part of the reason that those orders are coming in. So I'm still trying to strike that particular thing while the iron is hot, so to speak. Uh, But uh, anyway, I knocked out a billet for a hammer for Beaumont Metalworks. I'm going to try to get that done, hopefully in the next couple of days. I think I've said that like three times now, but I'm going to try to get that done. I've been using that KMG grinder like crazy lately. It's a phenomenal piece of kit as the British folk like to say. Um, I have found that the bulk of the KMG Classic, the the weight of that machine really lends to stability when you're grinding and it just, it makes it a much more pleasurable grinder to use than the, uh, than the lighter weight one that I built from Pipe. So anyway, just a little update about what's going on in my shop. I'll see you in the next segment. Later. Bye.
1: Hey there, everybody. It's uh, Thanksgiving day. It's uh, in the morning time. Um, It's, I don't even know what time it is. 8.13, and I'm out for a run. Finishing up a run. I'm up at my my in-law's place in uh, northern Mississippi. And uh, it's a little brisk this morning. I'm using my uh airpods to record, so I hope the audio comes through on this last segment of the podcast. But anyway, it being Thanksgiving Day, I just wanted to take a minute and reflect on that, reflect on the things I'm thankful for in twenty twenty, which you know it's been a weird year. It's been a year of a lot of uh a lot of lows for a lot of people. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, those kind of times really make me cognizant of, of what I'm thankful for the most. And, uh, you know, there were things in 2019 that I was definitely taking for granted. And I, I had no idea at the time that I was taking them for granted. You know, I've, I've always kind of thought that uh, I don't want to, I've always thought that I lived in a way that I'd try to take advantage of the moment. Um, But, you know, I'm really terrible at that. My perception of how I do that has changed drastically in 2020. You know, there's activities that I was doing with my kids in 2019 that I wish I had enjoyed more. Not that I didn't enjoy them. I know that I did, but I wish I had, I don't know, hindsight's 2020. <laughs> Get it? Anyway, I'm just kind of feeling uh, like uh, it's a good time to think about those kind of things here at the end of the year, such a weird year. I'm really thankful for my family. And my, my kids and my wife. And I'm thankful for the things I get to make. I'm thankful for my employment. You know, there's so many people that have lost so much this year. That uh, the big things I'm especially thankful for, but um, I'm really thankful for the small things too. The extra time that I've been able to spend with my kids during the lockdown and quarantine has been invaluable. And irreplaceable, and I know now that I won't look back at 2020 and think, Oh, what a terrible year! Uh, I'll look back and think, Man, that was that was a year where I got to spend more time with my kids than I would have. And so, anyway, not to get too mushy on you, but I just wanted to wrap this episode up with a note about thankfulness, and uh, hope everyone has had a good Thanksgiving and a good Christmas season. Uh, enjoy the holidays. You know, enjoy the things that you can enjoy and uh, be thankful for them. So anyway, I'm going to wrap up this episode. Uh, in the next episode, I'm going to do a QA. and a So I'm going to take the entire episode and try to answer uh, listener questions. So if you've got questions about me, blacksmithing, about bladesmithing, about power hammers, tire hammers, anvils, I don't know, hit me me up, send me some some questions, and uh, I'll address them in the next episode, so I'm going to post up on Instagram a call for questions, and I'll use those as well. So, I'm going to turn this off, and start running again finish out my run and i'll see you all in the next episode thanks again for listening and for all the comments and support of the podcast really means a lot see you happy thanksgiving
0: well i'm gonna let that close up uh episode 37 i was gonna add another segment here to the end of this podcast but i decided just to wrap this one up I've not been podcasting quite as regularly as I did when I started and I'm going to try to fix that over the next few weeks by just uh, recording a little bit every day. I think I said in another episode that it was actually harder now for me to find time for podcasting now that I'm actually working from the house full-time. I don't have quite as many commutes uh, where I can kind of talk in a podcast form, you know, so I'm going to have to dedicate some time to actually sit down And do that. Um, But anyway, thanks again for listening. And uh, I apologize for the terrible audio quality of that last segment. You know, I was wearing my the AirPods, and uh, those things are great for listening to music, but they're just awful microphones. So I'll try not to do that again in the future. But um, hope everybody's having a good holiday season. Had a great Thanksgiving. I know that I did, and I'm looking forward to uh, Christmas coming up. So anyway, I'll see you in the next episode, which is going to be a QA and a episode. See you then. Bye.